So yes, my name is Tim. Uh, I'm one of the members here and I'm part of the Alex Park Run missional community. Um, if you've ever applied for a job, and I'm guessing that's um, most of you here, the first thing you look at to see if you think you'd like it is the job description. Most of these are fairly um, generic and dull sometimes, but I thought I'd have a look on the internet for the world's worst job description. And I found this gem. It's a job description for a PA for the former professional footballer, Jermaine Defoe. Let's have a look. So, this is the first page of quite a few. So, on a day-to-day -day basis, you'll be involved in scheduling and highly organising, whatever that means, the managers and the family's private social and business calendars. Sounds a lot of work, doesn't it? Uh, you will meet deadlines and demands of the manager's extensive and hectic work sh schedules. Regularly checking the home when Jermaine is away, making sure all is in place for his return, the fridge is stocked, the plants watered and the house is clean. Um, managing and organising individual family members, Sandra, Andre, Shante and Chase and family pets. I'm glad that full stop is there. Um, wouldn't want to be doing that. Um, even help to plan and organise a special yearly calendar of events. For example, Mother's Day. Um, this is my favourite. Producing his own iPhone apps. <laughs> now, <laughs> I don't know what kind of iPhone apps that Jermaine Defoe um, especially needs that aren't already available. Uh, maybe they're Jermaine Defoe uh, appreciation apps and wh why he needs more than one, I don't know. Um, <laughs> this uh, job description is uh, audacious in its scale <laughs> and demands that it would take a superhuman person to be uh, an app developer, um, social events organiser and a milk, milk checker of the fridge at the same time. Um, but in this passage here um, in Mark, we're also looking at a job description of sorts. And thankfully, it can be boiled down to something much simpler um, in terms of number of duties. Um, but at the same time, they're in a way more demanding than the mundane tasks some poor person is doing for the Defoe family. And this is not just a description for a job. It's a description to enter a glorious and eternal kingdom. And in these three encounters, we learn about four characteristics of a disciple of Jesus. Oh, I've done that thing. I've sent it to the end again. Sorry. Um, and they are devotion, wonder, trust, and sacrifice. Devotion, wonder, trust, and sacrifice. So firstly, let's have a look at devotion. We see here the Pharisees uh, trying to trip Jesus up on the issue of divorce. If he supported it, he would be upholding the Pharisees' procedures, and they doubted he would do that. They knew that to speak out against divorce would not only be unpopular with the crowd, it would be unpopular with King Herod, who had already killed John the Baptist, who had spoken out on his divorce and adultery. And as Jesus often does, he responds with a question, asking them what Moses commanded. And they dutifully quoted Deuteronomy 21, verse 1, that a man can issue his wife with a certificate of divorce. And I'm going to read the end of that verse, 
um, if then she, f- she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now, that should shock us. They could divorce them because of some indecency. How broad and permissive is that? If she wore the wrong clothes, if her beauty diminished in his eyes as she grew older. It reflects a culture of marriage of get married first, then see if she suits you. If not, you can send her away. That is about as far away from God's plan for marriage as you can get. But Jesus exposes this law for what it was, a concession to their hard hearts. It was only really a pragmatic law intended to keep the social upheaval associated with divorce to a minimum. Jesus then quotes Genesis 3, God's true teaching on marriage, that the blueprint of marriage is lifelong devotion. The two shall become one flesh and let no man separate. Now this is not to say that there are no circumstances where divorce is acceptable. In Matthew 5, Jesus allows it when adultery has already happened. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul recognises divorce when one partner leaves as he or she no longer believes. So it's permitted, but only as a last resort to prevent disaster. A last resort, not an available exit route. The significance of this teaching on divorce here is to emphasise God's high view of marriage, his original intention for marriage, and the radical call on those who enter into it, lifelong devotion. Now, I appreciate not everyone in this room is married, and I'll come to what this means for you shortly. But what this means for the married person hearing this is fairly clear. To be a married person in the kingdom of God is to pursue lifelong devotion to your husband or wife. Verse 8 says, you are one flesh. How do you go about dividing a unit that is bound so tightly by God? In our marriage vows, we promise to stick by our partners through thick and thin, sickness and health, plenty and poverty. But if you're unmarried here today, you might have switched off, thinking it's not for you. But if one day you want to be married, it's a disclaimer against doing it for short-term, self-gratifying reasons, simply to cure your loneliness or gratify desires. Marriage is hard. I've been married for three years. Is it three? No, two. Three? Three. (laughs) Blows into one. Um. (laughs) And already I have experienced of that. It is a lifelong, life-giving devotion. Yes, it can be full of joy and love, often is, but it can also involve conflict, gritty self-denial, daily admissions of sin, and pleas for repentance. It exposes your own sinful heart like nothing else. In our individualistic age, sharing your life with someone goes against the tide of we can do what we want when we, lo- when we want. Don't go into it thinking, it'll be easy. And don't go into it thinking, I want to try it out. I can always get a divorce if I don't like it. Aside from the circumstances I mentioned, there is no honourable returns policy for a husband or wife. In fact, Paul encourages people not to marry. 
That's how hard it is. What if we're happily single? If you're happy not to be married, does this mean only married people can be in the kingdom of God? Well, of course not. Jesus wasn't married, Paul wasn't married. It is merely a teaching about the outworking of devotion between a man and wife. Devotion that comes from a self-sacrificial heart. We'll come back to that later. But I think it teaches all of us that no matter what our marital status, Jesus is after a lifelong relationship with us. Later in the New Testament, Paul states that human marriage is just a picture of Christ's marriage with the church, with us. And it's teeing up what is about to come on how we should be living in his kingdom. Secondly, wonder. In verse 13, some children come to Jesus and his disciples, like some jobs with bouncers, try to shoo them off. Jesus is angry. Let them come to me, he says. And what comes next, no one could have predicted, least of all the disciples. For he says, the kingdom of God belongs to one such as these. So what qualities of childlikeness is Jesus referring to here? Well, pure, de- pure dependence and a sense of wonder, hanging on to every word God says. Only those who receive the kingdom with the simplicity and trust of a child can enter into it. My wife Ruth and I uh, recently had twin boys, and having two babies in my life has taught me something about dependence. Aside from God giving them life, Max and Isaac have nothing that we as parents have not given them. No clothes, no milk, no cuddles, no toys. They're completely dependent on us. And they embrace it. They know nothing different. It doesn't always look like it. There's a lot of crying. But they're crying to us because they know that we are the ones who can satisfy their needs, who can feed them, cuddle them, play with them. The challenge for us is... They have no choice. No alternative parents. We're it. But we as adults, we do. We can choose prideful self-reliance over humble dependence. Weary cynicism over simple trust. Despair over joy. And so often we do. But Jesus is saying here, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. And if you don't receive me like children do, you're not really receiving me at all. And how can you enter into God's kingdom when you don't receive him fully? What does this look like for us? Well, I'd say this is a call to wonder more. I'm not talking about thinking about things we don't know, um, but to wonder. To wonder at at who we are in Christ and what God has given and done for us. Where does this fit into the rhythm of our lives? One thing God has given us is creation, a beautiful, natural world full of good gifts. When we see this creation, do we wonder at its creator? Are we captured like a child by its beauty? The boys are starting to come out of their sleepy, newborn state and look at the world around them. Sometimes at home, they spend about 10 minutes staring at the curtain rail. I I kid you not. Who knew a silver tube could be so fascinating? But Jesus is teaching us here that we need to be like that with the kingdom of God, lost in wonder. 
And we can wonder not just at God's creation. We can and should wonder at who God is and what he's done for us. Loving, patient, just. The creator of the universe who longs to be in relationship with us. Who sacrificed his son to be in relationship with us. When in our lives do we wonder like this? Firstly, in worship. When we sing the words of the songs we sing and we really mean those words, then we are wondering. In our prayers, when we pray not just for the things we want to change, but we thank God for what he's given us and for who he is, we are wondering. Structured worship times and prayers are great things, but we should also be wondering in our daily lives, always. In this brief encounter, Jesus is telling us that we won't receive the kingdom of heaven if wonder is not a regular habit of our hearts. And in the same passage, I think we've also been called to trust. Our boys have an unwavering certainty that they'll get milk every three to four hours. Not that they have much concept of time right now, but you, f- you feel sometimes the certainty gets a bit less when they're crying. But older children in loving households have an unwavering trust that their, ch- that their parents will comfort them when they fall over and bang their knee or when a friend lets them down. And we're not perfect parents, far from it. But God is the perfect father. So how much more should we trust him? To trust him with our jobs, our relationships, our futures. If we trust him, it will free us to do the next thing he asks in this passage. To sacrifice. On the back of this encounter with a child comes a contrast with a hard-headed, business-like man asking Jesus what he needs to do to gain eternal life in verse 17. In effect, he's saying, what's the minimum I need to do to get my ticket, to put it in my drawer for when I need it? Or today you might say, put it in my Google wallet. And Jesus tells him, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not, uh, and respect your parents. And he says, since the day I was born, I've done this. And I love this bit. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He wasn't just a salesman saying, it'll cost this much. He looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. Go sell your possessions, give all the money to the poor and store up treasure in heaven and follow me. It's easy for this passage to look terrifying to Christians. What, we have to sell everything we have? Mark Twain once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. This is a passage where we all feel this a bit. Don't worry, I will come back to the selling everything bit later. But when given a few commands in the list, we tend to remember the last one. And I think the ordering of the commands make the, makes the bigger command the second one. Follow me. Jesus was at that time a nomad going from town to town, preaching and doing miracles. It's almost as if he's saying, you can't follow me with all your stuff, so give it away. Being part of the kingdom of God doesn't mean just sticking to the rules, being respectable, 
It means following Jesus, putting your trust in him, becoming a, a part of a family of believers. And this man wasn't prepared to do it. He was wealthy and wealth ruled him. He couldn't let go of it. He said that he'd followed all the commandments, but actually, ironically, he failed at the first one. Have no other gods but me. The fact that he wasn't prepared to let go of his money was proof that money was his God. And this was shocking to the disciples. Twice in the passage it says the disciples were amazed. In Jewish culture, being wealthy was a sign of blessing and having done well. And here Jesus is saying to this man, get rid of it and follow me. And he then gives the comical proverb of a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. Some people have said that he's actually talking about a low gate in Jerusalem that a camel could get through if they took all the baggage off, twisting it to say rich people can get through if they're humble. But this tradition has no historical basis and it looks like the invention of a wealthy church looking for loopholes. There's no way to dodge the bullet here. As is always the case, Jesus means what he says. And it's impossible. A camel through an eye of a needle? But what he says next about being saved should give us hope. It is impossible with man, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The Bible is full of beautiful and encouraging verses, amazing and encouraging in their own different ways. But if we're ranking them, and I don't encourage this, but in in the relief factor, I think this comes pretty high up the list. Jesus has said how difficult it is to get into the kingdom of God. But here he says, with God, it's possible. It's not possible by our human efforts, but with God, it's possible. Just think on that for a moment. I have a mental image of a huge burden being lifted off my shoulders. The sheer relief doesn't ride on how good a person we are, even how good a Christian we are. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible we've read and studied, how much we serve, whether we are in church leadership. A new believer who commits to following Jesus is just as saved as a prolific church planter and preacher. The day he makes that step, the very day, the very hour, the very minute. We need to confess that we are too weak to follow Jesus on his terms. We shouldn't be trying to find loopholes to continue in our complacency. Are we trusting in our own good deeds to save us? Our respectability and our quiet, hard-working lives? Although we may not openly brag about it to others, do we count up the ways which we are, in which we are a good person, serve the church, even do mission? The maker's market, the park run, thinking of these things alone will get us through the door of heaven. Now Jesus is saying here that only willingness to completely surrender everything we have for him will guarantee us a place in heaven. But again, we must delight in reminding ourselves that we are not doing it alone. With us, it is impossible. Only God's grace can save us and cause this change in our hearts. 
all of this ensures that gaining eternal life cannot be a transaction. Of course, the rhythms of discipleship, such as service, teaching, prayer, many others are important, but they are the fruit of faith and our salvation, not the trunk that holds it up. And so Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus replies, affirming this with another amazing promise to reassure them that it won't be for nothing. No one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. When we become a Christian, we join a family far bigger than our biological families, a global family, harvest fields to do mission in. And like the prosperity gospel might have us think, this is not a promise of earthly material reward. That would totally contradict what Jesus has just said. So it cannot be a right interpretation. Instead, we are, we are promised persecutions. It won't be easy. But a promise of a global family whose houses will be opened up to you and you will ultimately gain eternal life. For the last will be first and the first last. By our sacrificial hearts, we are called to make ourselves last on this earth. And by doing so, we'll gain the opportunity to, to be first in the next. Now, we may not be stinking rich and greedy for money. I don't think anyone in this room is a hedge fund manager. But underneath the surface, is there a trust and protectiveness in money? A feeling of security based on our bank balance? Let me ask you a few diagnostic questions. How do you feel in the week leading up to payday? When the bank balance isn't looking too good, maybe you're dipping into your overdraft. Anxious? How do you feel when a warning light comes on in your car? You put it in the garage and they tell you that it's going to cost £180 to change a switch and that the car will fail its MOT if you don't. Annoyed? That happened to me last week. And I was a bit. How do you feel when you discover just how much the bank is going to charge you in interest for the mortgage you're applying for? Or when your landlord puts up your rent, ripped off? Of course, there is wisdom in some level of care and concern for our money. Some level of worry spurs us to make wise decisions or to change our spending habits. But if the above things are causing you to be resentful or feel wronged, we have to ask ourselves, in what are we placing our security? I'm sure at least one of these things has happened to all of us in this room. And this passage calls us to really think deeply about our relationship with money. It even encourages us to give it away to help the needy and to store up treasure in heaven. Your money is not going to go with you. Now, God has called us to be on mission in here in Charlton, and we do need certain things, such as somewhere to live, food to eat, a way to get around. So I'm not saying that we all need to go out tomorrow and sell everything. And Jesus does not have a problem with possessions. Somebody owned all the houses that he and his disciples retreated to. 
But in this story of the rich young ruler, he exposes the total incompatibility of loving money and loving God. Are we willing to sacrifice everything we have for the service of the kingdom? To use our houses as open venues of hospitality? To sacrifice the colour of our carpets to spilt food from a meal we're hosting for missional community? To give to others in times of need? And when we get a financial windfall, an unexpected tax rebate, a promotion, a bonus, whatever it might be, is our first thought, how can we use this to serve the kingdom? Or is it free money? Quite fancy a 4K TV. The question we have to ask is, does our money serve or do we serve money? It's impossible to be self-sacrificial and love acquisition of wealth for wealth's sake at the same time. One is about giving, the other is about getting. If you yearn to see your bank balance grow, why would you give your money away? One commentator has put it like this. The love of acquisition and appetite for self-gratification will deaden the instinct for self-sacrifice. The love of acquisition and appetite for self-gratification will deaden the instinct for self-sacrifice. So being a disciple of Jesus costs. And actually there are similarities between the job description of life in the kingdom and that of Jermaine Defoe's PA. They're both 24-7. He did actually demand that they were available 24-7. And they are both audacious. But it's no more than Jesus has paid for us on the cross. It cost him his life. He'd been perfect, followed all the rules, yet he willingly died for us. We who actually don't have respectable lives. If everything you ever did was played on the, on the big screen here, would you still call yourself respectable? Maybe you're not a Christian here today. Maybe these attributes of living in the kingdom don't interest you as you don't feel you do live in the kingdom. But Jesus is still calling you. He's still reaching out to you like he reached out to the rich young man. He loves you with the same strength that he loved the people in this passage. And the reward is great. That makes it a transaction, which we have learnt that living in the kingdom is categorically not. If you're interested in accepting Jesus' love for as it is, speak to myself or Greg afterwards. We'd love to help you on that first step. But now let's remember the cost that Jesus paid for us by celebrating the Lord's Supper. If you're following Jesus, this meal is for you. It doesn't matter if you're part of Redeemer. If you have made that step, you are welcome. But if you haven't made that step, please just sit this one out and take the time to think about what you've heard. We don't want you to make a statement of something you don't believe. Maybe you want to make that step right now, and this is the first time. 
If that's the case, please don't go away without speaking to me or Greg. We'd love to help you. So let me pray.